Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi. Views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Well, on this episode, we're going to discuss autism. And part of the discussion is going to focus on how people with autism are using music and theater to enrich their lives. And to do that, we are very honored to have with us Dr. Barry Prezant. Dr. Barry Prezant has worked for over 50 years with the neurodevelopmentally diverse community and especially the autism community. His professional training is in speech language pathology. He's faculty at the Brown University program in medicine. Dr. Prezant has published more than 130 articles and chapters on autism, childhood communication disorders, and child development, and has given hundreds of seminars and workshops across the US and in 25 countries. He is perhaps most recognized for being the lead developer of the CERTS model, which is an evidence-based educational model for individuals with autism and their families, and for his book, Uniquely Human, A Different Way of Seeing Autism, which has been recently updated. Dr. Prezant, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. It's a pleasure to be with you. I thought we would uh, start the show by giving uh, an overview and explanation of exactly what is autism. It's very much in the in the media. There's shows on television. I think it would be good to kind of start with that so people can get a kind of a context. Sure. Um, Well, autism is believed to be a neurodevelopmental condition. um, And the way people describe it in terms of its uh, the cause or the etiology is um, differences in brain functioning. Um, And kind of the lay terminology is differences in how the brain is wired and how parts of the brain communicate with other parts of the brain. Um, In terms of the more formal definition, according um, to the DSM-5, we're talking about problems in communication, problems in relationships and social interaction, as well as a restricted repertoire of behaviors, interests, and activities. Um, I would say that, uh, of course, as you know, the DSM is always undergoing changes. And um, there has been um, some concern, especially coming out of the self-advocate community, um, adults with autism, about having a more balanced view of autism and a little bit more attention being paid to to the strengths. I have a question about that. one time I heard that there are individuals with autism who are involved in the DSM committee. Is that true? Were they involved with the most recent edition, the DSM-5-TR? Um, I, I could not say for certain, but um, I'm pretty sure that they have autistic consultants. I don't know how much power they wield in the end in terms of making final decisions. Um, certainly the Interagency Coordinating Committee at the National Institutes of Health have autistic representatives on the committees. Oh. Um, Dr. Prasad, or, or Barry, Barry, are you okay with, uh, we'll go over first name basis here. Um, so Barry, how, when, how did you get involved with the area of autism, uh, being, you know, your professional training was in speech language pathology. And once you did, when you got involved and noticed how it was being thought of or being conceptualized, what did you notice and how, what kind of uh, different ideas did you uh, add to the discussion and the conceptualization of autism? Uh, yeah, well, let's go way back. I actually started um, working at uh, residential summer camps as a teenager with people with a variety of disabilities, um, many of whom I think back maybe didn't have diagnoses of being on the autism spectrum and certainly were. Um, so I started before I got involved academically, and I was, I think, 18 years old at the time. Um, and then I went on, um, long story short, undergraduate major in linguistics and psycholinguistics. Um, it's a term you don't hear that much anymore, um, but psycholinguistics has to do with the study of language and communication development and the relationship to other aspects of development, such as cognitive development. So how do we use language to represent our knowledge of the world and and all kinds of issues around memory processing Mm -hmm. is under psycholinguistics. I went on for a master's in speech language pathology and communication disorders. Um, And I actually did my master's thesis and doctoral dissertation on autism in the 1970s. Now, way back when, 
in uh, it was coming out of the era of the so-called refrigerator mother or emotionally cold parents who caused autism. Um, the work of Bettelheim certainly popularized that. Uh, you may know that Leo Kanner, some people say, well, he coined the term refrigerator mother, but then he retracted that um, and said, no, it's, it's a constitutionally determined condition. It's not due to bad caregiving or emotionally cold caregiving. I am a developmentalist by training. Um, all of my training, my master's and doctoral training was in speech, language, communication, um, areas that were not that common at the time, um, emotional development in children, but certainly cognitive development was a big focus at that time, um, and, and social development. So I always look through the lens of all of the research on typical and so-called atypical development. But at the time, coming out of the area of the refrigerator parents, um, what really began to dominate and um, where you're located in Southern California, Dr. Lovas at UCLA, um, really translated a lot of Skinner's work from a very traditional or even radical behavioral orientation into treatment and also understanding of autism. So early on, um, the late Dr. Lovas, you know, was saying things like, well, autism is just a bunch of quirky behaviors, that their speech um, was meaningless parroting, psychotic speech. I actually did my doctoral dissertation on echolalia and prove that that was incorrect because <laughs> I was able to look at echolalia or repetition of speech from a developmental perspective and actually found some very obscure literature in the research on language development and typically developing kids that helped inform our understanding of echolalia. Mm -hmm. uh, that was big. And what's very interesting to me is my published research on echolalia um, coming out of the late 70s into the early mid 80s is probably getting more attention now than it did back then. Oh, that is interesting. Um, it is interesting. And, and, and part of the reason is we have now you know, moved to looking at people on the spectrum, not just through a mm. behavioral lens, but also from a fuller lens of what is their experience. Mm. Um, and many adults on the spectrum now talk about when they were young, you know, what was echolalia for them? And, and you get only totally positive responses that echolalia was very important to me. You know, it, it enabled me to at least speak back to people when I couldn't fully understand what they were saying. Um, so my history, um, quite honestly, um, has always been to question a lot of what we now refer to as the traditional behavioral or now referred to as ABA, applied behavior analytic literature. Um, and it, it's, if you look at my writings from the early 80s up to now, um, I, with my colleagues, I've been very, very consistent in always you know, putting some very significant questions on the table about what has become the dominance of autism treatment in this country. It really and, has, it, yeah. and, and interestingly, what, what's happened is, you know, and I'll say this with some pride, I think we were a little bit you know, ahead of our time because that movement especially with the support of autistic adults, has really moved center and front. Um, and now people are giving much more respect for, um, along with the research that supports it, what's called relationship-based approaches um, and developmental relationship-based approaches. Let's not look at autistic people as if their behavior is something that we just don't understand and undesirable and needs to be managed. Let's look at the experience of an autistic person. And now we can be informed, you know, about that by thousands, if not tens of thousands of autistic people around the world. I was just wanting to talk about your book, Dr. Prasad. I, I definitely want to talk more about ABA therapy. Maybe we can talk more about that in our next episode. Um, but I want to get to your book and what makes, what made your book so foundational and groundbreaking. Um, I, I mean, when I read it years ago, that was my first exposure to that type of perspective. And it really primed me for the now, you know, widely also popular uh, neurodiversity movement, which really goes hand in hand and primes, primes that. Um, could you talk a little bit about your book and, and what was so... Um, uh, unique at that time about your book? 
Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because I'm constantly reflecting on why has the book been so embraced by such a, a wide variety of people and experiences. Um, so the first edition came out in 2015. Um, and basically, it's a storybook of all that I've learned in my career from families and people on the spectrum. But then I tie those stories to research and I tie those stories to controversies in the field. Um, so uh, literally, it has been embraced by autistic people, parents, educators, therapists. Um, it is now, and including the new expanded edition, which just came out this past week, translated into 23 languages. Congratulations um, so, on that. The well, expanded, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that tells me the themes are universal, um, that everybody can relate to my stories and how I interpret what I've learned. And I think the themes are universal because it's based in child and human development. And, and so it goes well beyond just autism. Um, so it, it's been an amazing, uh, absolutely amazing experience for me. Um, and I think the title, Uniquely Human, really captures what I just spoke about a few minutes ago um, earlier in my career, that I have, and the term that I've come to use is, you know, I prefer to depathologize autism. And in no way is this sugarcoating the challenges um, you know, it, it's not saying that, oh, yeah, let's just look at the strengths, which we give so much more attention to now. But it really has to do with, you know, let's look at a person as a whole person. Let's understand the family experience. Let's understand the autistic person's experience. And I prefer to look through the lens of these are unique human beings who process information, process the sensory world differently than the rest of us do. That results in challenges in many cases, not just challenges for the person, but for teachers, therapists, everybody. Um, and it, it really, I see it as a more respectful way because we all have challenges and strengths, um, but they may be more pronounced. The peaks and valleys may be much more pronounced in people with autism. So you can have genius level people on the spectrum and those genius level people might be able not maybe can't tolerate having a conversation with five people in a hotel lobby because of their processing difficulties. Yeah. If you could get into um, one of the parts that I loved about your book that I think um, really exemplifies the perspective of your book is the way you break down certain um, behaviors. Could you maybe give us an example of um, how you looked at certain behaviors that used to be, um, you know, uh, like highly stigmatized or sti yes, stigmatized <laughs> and, and to the point where p therapists and doctors were trying to get rid of behavior X. Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, two big categories that I think of right away are, um, so-called language behaviors. Um, and then, um, what the field has come to call problematic or challenging behavior. Okay. Um, so, let me start with the problematic or challenging behavior. Uh, and this actually links back to um, our, maybe we'll talk about it later, our educational model, the CERTS model, um, where we saw not uh, problematic or challenging behaviors, everything from bolting out of a classroom to biting or scratching or so-called stimming, which has to do with repetitive behaviors very often to increase sensory stimulation. Um, that they were viewed as, as deviant. Um, and actually a lot of the work in behaviorism in the past, it's changed somewhat now, but in, in the past had almost like a dehumanizing perspective. So, you know, even, even common terms like, oh, he's got a lot of aggressive behavior. So often it just stayed at that level. Okay, he bites, he throws things, you know, he screams in your face. But for so many years, we didn't go past the surface behavior and say, well, what's going on beneath that? Is it that he's so, or she's so afraid or anxious? Is it that, you know, we have violated an expectation in a regular routine that has happened, which can be terribly confusing to autistic people. Um, we could give so many reasons. Uh, so that, that's a big piece. The big piece is let's go beyond the surface behavior, okay? Um, and then the language behaviors have to do with things such as echolalia 
or perseverative speech, which is saying the same thing over and over again. Um, what's called incessant questioning. Are we going swimming today? Are we going swimming today? We say, yes, we're going swimming today. Two minutes later, are we going swimming today? Are we going swimming today? Um, and we have to understand the reasons why we see those characteristics. So just very quickly in a nutshell, um, in my research was a videotape analysis of four kids over a year of the echolalia when they repeated mm. speech. We found out it was often done with intention. It wasn't meaningless parroting that they were communicating for different purposes, what we call communicative functions, okay? Not only that, but it was an important way for an autistic person to learn language and to move into more complex language. So a totally different perspective than it's meaningless parroting, psychotic speech was another term that was used. Mm -hmm. um, and, and with the problematic or challenging behavior, it really had to do with what is this person's experience when, you know, maybe they are grabbing you and they scratch you, okay? Or they're a student in a classroom, gets out of their seat and bolts out of the classroom and maybe out of the school. Let's not just label that as undesirable behavior that needs to be managed. Let's understand the supports that a person needs to address those reasons why. So maybe that student needed a break. Maybe that student could not sit quietly for a half hour during a lecture. Um, and didn't know, didn't know how to ask for a break. We, we often now teach kids and adults to know how to say, I need a break, I need to go outside, get a drink of water, walk back and forth a little bit. Um, so we're addressing, trying to address the primary reasons why we see behaviors that other people don't understand. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and we're talking with Dr. Barry Prezant about autism, his work, and, and also we're gonna touch on in the second half, uh, his work with music and theater in enriching lives with people with autism. I, before we get to that, I wonder, uh, Barry, if you could talk a little bit about how your search model came into, uh, uh, how you developed that and how you incorporate these ideas. It, 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 and, uh, and among those ideas are changing people's minds about how they are viewing autism and folks with autism. Yeah. And, and let me say, I'm particularly proud of, of a number of facts. First of all, the search model is a team model. Um, and it was a, a initially developed kind of as a school-based team model, but it's expanded well beyond that. So what CERT stands for, it's an acronym. It stands for social communication, and that's the SC, emotional regulation, that's the ER, and transactional support, which is the TS. And we believe, um, my colleagues and I, uh, believe that those need to be the primary foundations of whether it's a good educational program, whether it's a good kind of life framework for people on the spectrum. Actually, we believe it's for all of us. But uh, um, And so social communication, very quickly, we know um, that progress, ability to maintain a job, so many aspects um, of social communication are important for a good quality of life and are important for success in school. And we do know that progress in social communication is an important prognostic indicator for a person's quality of life, school success, and so forth. And I wanna be clear, social communication is not about how complex and long your sentences are, okay? Social communication is about your ability to engage with others to share your ideas, share your emotions. And a relatively new area that I've been involved in um, is people who were thought of as significantly intellectually um, disabled, who did not speak, um, and beyond augmentative communication, such as communication boards, there are new techniques that are showing in many cases, many non-speakers on the spectrum are quite intelligent, quite observant. They just didn't have the right way to express and share their knowledge. Um, so that's, that's an area that's getting a lot of attention now. Um, just quickly, emotional regulation is, you know, when we think about the factors that allow us to be well-regulated, we can be alert, we can engage in social interaction, we can problem solve cognitively, we're very good at our job, we're very good at all of our tasks, that we have to be physiologically well-regulated as well as emotionally well-regulated. The other side of that 
is what are the challenges to that? Well, autistic people have many, many challenges to staying well-regulated emotionally and physiologically. We don't have time to get into this, but there are many, many biomedical factors. You know, everything from seizure disorders to gastrointestinal issues that, you know, are known and observed to be more prominent in autism than in the general population. Um, but also the emotional piece. Autistic people tend to worry a lot, especially if routines are changed um, because they rely so much on things being very predictable and very consistent, which helps them tremendously. But if things are unpredictable and inconsistent, it causes a lot of anxiety. Um, and we can all kind of relate to that with COVID <laughs> and what <Yes>. COVID <laughs> has done to everyday routines. I think, you know, in, in a funny way, it's not funny, but uh, COVID has given us all a little bit of the experience of what autistic people experience every day. Um, when we're not sure, especially for parents, you know, will your child have to stay at home and learn remotely or, or is he or she going back to school? How routines are changed. Our life routines have changed dramatically. So is there any you know, surprise that we have just an epidemic of anxiety disorders in the population now? Um, and I think that's one of the reasons. Um, and autistic people, again, are much more sensitive to those kinds of issues. So to kind of sum up emotional regulation, which I do want to say, I'm very proud that in our work, we introduced the whole research area and treatment area of emotional regulation to autism in the late 90s. Um, so I published a number of articles saying, you know, enough of behavior management. Let's get, get that down to the roots of why people on the spectrum have more anxiety, you know, may have meltdowns more frequently and so forth. Um, and now it's one of the hottest areas of research. Stanford University has a whole emotional regulation and autism institute. Mm. Um, it's really expanded greatly and a lot of therapy techniques come out of the philosophy and the research on emotional regulation. Last transactional support, very simple. All of the ways that we support autistic people and their families, um, and we support people interpersonally by knowing how to adjust our language, by knowing how to adjust our whole pace of interaction to allow an autistic person to be engaged and not feel anxious. Um, another important piece about interpersonal support is can we read a person's signals of dysregulation, that they're going down that slippery slope and whoops, you know, if we don't change the situation or provide support, that person might have a meltdown now, okay? Um, and then we talk about learning supports. How do we adjust school curricula? How do we teach self-help skills? Um, how do we teach job skills? So in, in the search model, we have that dichotomy, interpersonal supports and learning supports, which come together. Um, and, you know, a lot of autistic people have looked at our curriculum in the CERTS model and they say, yeah, this is the kind of stuff that helps us. You know, thank you for pointing that out. And we're very specific with goals and objectives in these areas. I'm just talking in generalities here. Um, and the, the other piece is the family piece. Um, we, again, we could spend a whole day talking about this, but the way we support families from early diagnosis and join them on the journey of their lives with their autistic family member. I, that was so helpful. Thank you so much. I also really like the way, Barry, that you promote active engagement as well for individuals with autism. And I think that um, really inf it informs why uh, having hobbies like theater or expressive arts is so important. Can you talk a little bit about your work in those organizations? Sure. And let me just begin with uh, the notion of active engagement. Yes, um, please. The, the reason it's emphasized now when we want people initiating, expressing themselves, you know, being able to help to make decisions about their lives, um, everything from school to job placement and, and, and so forth. Um, the reason we really emphasize active engagement is the history of autism um, very often focused on having a person be well-behaved and compliant. Um, teaching a person, even in language, just to respond, point to the pictures, point to your nose, point to your head, as opposed to having a person truly express their lives 
through their words, through their gestures, and, and so forth. So that's exactly what theater and the expressive arts, you know, allows for. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. I'm involved in two companies now, and there's actually been a lot of activity in the last two weeks. The, the Miracle Project, founded by Elaine Hall out of Los Angeles, um, which is, you know, been around now 14 years, I believe, and, and does trainings internationally. Uh, we replicated the Miracle Project on the East Coast through the Brown University Theater Department, where I have an appointment. Um, I'll talk about that in a minute, a little bit more. But that is a company that has many different classes, even for non-speaking people on the spectrum. Um, and it, it's quite amazing. And some in their higher level classes, what they call the company class, actually have gone on to be on TV shows, such as Atypical and so forth. So a little bit of what they're doing with the Miracle Project in Los Angeles is for some actors, and that's what we call the participants actors, for some actors, they're being prepared for a professional life in theater. For others, it's just to be part of a community that's creative, make friendships and so forth. Um, the Spectrum Theater Ensemble out of Providence, um, the area where I live, is, is a little bit different. It is a professional, and both companies are inclusive, by the way. It, it's people on the spectrum, people with other disabilities, and neurotypical people as well. But the Spectrum Theater Ensemble was founded by um, professional non-autistic and autistic actors. Um, and it truly is at a professional level. It's been a, an award-winning company um, here in Rhode Island. Um, so for example, a couple of years ago, they did One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and it was an incredible production and won all, all kinds of statewide awards for theater. Um, they have playwrights. They tap into the work of autistic playwrights. So this past weekend, um, a, a wonderful autistic playwright named Dave Osmondson out of Arizona State, he is uh, a playwright in residence for the Spectrum Theater Ensemble. I'm going to refer to that as STE from now on. Um, and they just put on um, a production of his autobiographical play called Light Switch. Um, I just saw it this, this weekend. The premiere was um, in Providence. And it's an amazing play on so many levels. So they have autistic actors and neurotypical actors, as does the Miracle Project programs that we have in New England and Los Angeles. Barry, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, the new version or the updated version of Uniquely Human. What kinds of things were added? Uh, what new information? Yeah, yeah. And in, in the updated version of Uniquely Human, there's a lot more attention being paid to adults for a number of reasons. One is um, I have friendships I hang out with. I know a lot of adults on the spectrum. Um, and the other reason is our podcast, which is called Uniquely Human, the podcast, um, over the last year and a half, we've interviewed about 25 people on the spectrum. So a lot more attention to issues of how do we talk about autism to a person may be on the spectrum, but not yet diagnosed. They may not even know they're on the spectrum. That's called disclosure. How do we talk to young kids about being on the spectrum? I pay a lot more attention um, to the notion of intersectionality. There's a lot of talk now about autism as an identity, that an autistic person sees themselves as inseparable and my autism is who I am, okay? So intersectionality has to do with identity, but an autistic person also might be African-American or an autistic person might be a mother or a father. So intersectionality has to do with the, the way our various identities come together. Um, and, and that's important. So for example, with African-American individuals, um, we know all the problems with, uh, criminal justice system, you know, maybe responding to an autistic adult who's black very differently than an autistic adult who's white, simply to due to those biases. Right. And then finally, non-speakers. I give a lot more attention to non-speakers, which have so often have been left out of the discussion on autism. We actually interviewed three non-speakers on our podcast. Right. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we discussed autism, and uh, incorporation of the arts, music, theater with Dr. Barry Prezant. Dr. Prezant, thank you for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And thank you, too, to my co-host, Dr. Tosha Yamaguchi. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. 
You can also listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform, as well as enjoy an extended version of the show. If you like tonight's show, please follow us, post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Benjamin Metrican. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. Okay, now this extended version. Now we can ask a lot of more technical, more <laughs> more practitioner-oriented questions. This is when we, when we kind, of, kind of nerd out a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was... Uh... You know, I'm, I'm so deeply steeped in these issues that it's hard to keep it just kind of very short and bullet point. But I know. Yeah, I thought it was really good. Yeah, it was a lot of really good information. And there's just so mu- so many every everything you said just brought up so many extra questions. Um, but I-, I wanted to give you a chance. Was there anything else you wanted to add about what you added to the book or, you know, why you found uh, it important to add more to the book? Yeah, yeah, I. What I didn't say is there have been so, so many dramatic changes, even in the seven years since the first edition came out, yeah. that uh, the, the thing that's kind of surprising to me is that, you know, people, the first edition, they're trying to phase out the printing, but it's still like in, on most days, number one in, on Amazon and autism. So people are still finding it up to date and relevant. Yes. But I look at the first edition and I say, oh, my God. So many important things have happened in the last seven years that I left out because they weren't front burner issues then. So I, I think it's a marker of how dramatically uh, and quickly the field has changed just in five to seven years. Yeah, it's really lit a fire in the autism community, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, I do want to kind of give credit that, uh, you know, are you familiar with Neurotribes by Steve Silberman? I haven't read it. It's on my list, though. Oh, it's an it's an amazing book. And Steve, I got to know Steve well. He's out of San Francisco, and and um, he's not an autism. He's he's well. He says I'm not an expert on autism. I'm a science writer. Um, and so it's a really extremely well researched book. It's like 550 pages, um, and uh, he really gets autism culture because he steeped himself into autism culture. Long story short, our two books came out within a few weeks of each other. Um, and people began, I mean, everything from autistic bloggers to nature magazine began to review the books together as companion volumes. And Steve and I have since become good friends and we do see the books as companion volumes. I mean, he, his book is kind of the history, um, even obviously a century or two in some cases before the term neurodiversity was coined a history of neurodiversity by looking at famous people right up to the present um, and talking about how autism helped to launch the whole neurodiversity movement. Um, and then what Steve says is, and Barry's book tells you, what do we do about this now in real practice? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the books are, are, are considered companion volumes in that sense. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I see um, Uniquely Human as kind of one cog in the wheel of this incredible neurodiversity movement. And very many people, Steve says this, and I'm, I'd rather be a little bit more humble about it, but Steve says he feels that in terms of neurodiversity becoming front and center, especially in autism, that Uniquely Human has had a major, major influence where most people point to his book. Um, but when it comes to parents, you know, when it comes to teachers and therapists, many of whom may not read Neurotribes, um, because it's a little bit kind of more technical and not so much, what do we do about it? Um, it, it there, there's so much good stuff coming out right now. It, it's unbelievable. And a lot of it coming out of autistic writers. Yeah. 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 I, I always like to recommend your book to um, my patients' families for reading and your podcast too. Can you talk a little bit actually more about your podcast? You know, how did you find Dave, your co-host, and what's it like to um, produce this show together? And yeah, yeah. It, it, it's amazing how things are so in the moment. Uh, yesterday, Dave and I put the finishing touches on our 50th anniversary episode, which is coming out this Friday. Congratulations! And and part of it is how we got together. Um, again, really abbreviated description. A number of years ago, um, we were both kind of recruited, and actually Dave was at the forefront of this, in helping to establish a center for neurodiversity out of Denver, the Denver area. Long story short, it never worked out 
um, primarily for financial reasons. But we became friends through that. Um, and uh, he, uh, I'll never forget, he, he called me up. I didn't know who he was when he was reading Uniquely Human. Um, and that's how the invitation for me, you know, was put forth for the Center for Neurodiversity. He said, uh, is this Barry Prasan? I said, uh, yeah. He said, well, you don't know me. My name is Dave Finch. Um, and I'm 30 pages into your book and I love you. <laughs> <laughs> and Dave is on the spectrum. Um, and by profession, he's a very sophisticated audio engineer. He has a studio. Um, uh, actually, it's a home studio, but he does a lot of work in producing podcasts and other uh, recorded work for engineering companies and so forth. So a couple of years ago, a number of people have said to me, you know, Barry, you present well, you, you simplify complex issues. Why don't you have a podcast? And I just did not know how to go about doing it. I knew I could not do it myself. And then, I, you know, one morning in the shower says, Dave, let me call Dave. Got and it. I called Dave yeah. about two years ago. And Dave said, I would love to do that with you. So we started, you know, less than two years ago. And it's been 50 episodes. We're approaching a quarter of a million distinct downloads. Um, we are heard in over 100 countries. And wow. every month we just see an exponential trajectory. Um, and, you know, most of our guests are autistic, but we have parents on. We even have young kids on talking about what we call their enthusiasms. Yeah. Every, everything from deep sea creatures to microphones and cables. And I enjoy um, that segment. Yeah. So we try to keep it informative, but not heavy and certainly not what parents get too much of doom and gloom. Um, and that's the feedback we get. The feedback we get is that people like the banter between me and Dave. We are good friends. Dave has an incredible sense of humor and which kind of forces me to have a little bit more of a sense of humor. <laughs> um, and we enjoy doing it and people enjoy listening to it. Um, and so that's where it is right now. And we're going to be launching into the next 50 starting on Friday. Yeah. That's wonderful. Nice. Um, Barry, I was wondering, you know, you, you kind of mentioned this a little bit just a little while ago about you're kind of you're basically in the forefront of the neurodiversity movement. Has has that been difficult to negotiate? Because it could, can there be political issues? I imagine um, the, the community themselves thinking who should be at the forefront or defining us and things like that. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, the, the there's no doubt about it being kind of immersed in the field of autism and not being autistic and not being neurodivergent at all. Um, there are some people who have very, very kind of strict policies in their mind, such as an autistic person should never talk about the experience of autism because they don't know it firsthand. And in my new book, the expanded version in the intro, I address that. I say, listen, I am not trying to represent the lived experience of autistic people. I'm representing Barry's lived experience of knowing thousands of kids and families, of having good friends on the spectrum who I write with, I collaborate with, I present with. So I'm not saying this is the trial, you know, the, the, the truth, the indisputable truth about autism. I'm saying here's my experience, spending a big chunk of my life professionally and personally with people on the spectrum and with parents. Um, and I, I need to say there are very few people who really criticize me um, on that level because they see what I'm writing is respectful and they see what I'm saying, you know, very often is, at least for some people on the spectrum, an accurate depiction of what I think the experience of autism is from being an outsider. Um, and that does impact on, on the arts. Some people believe autistic actors should never be played by non-autistic people. Um, and of course, there's been an important movement, um, such as on the TV shows as, as we get it. Um, in contrast, for example, Atypical, um, Keir Gilchrist is a non-autistic actor and, and he starred in the show, Atypical. But I thought he was great. Um, as a matter of fact, my colleague Dave Finch consulted on the set for the show of Atypical. They called him in after the first year, it was thought that, you know, this is a little too stereotyped. It's not really solidly addressing the issues or, you know, what an autistic person might experience. Dave came in and he helped rewrite some of the scripts. Mm -hmm. um, and people actually thought the following seasons, and I think there were four seasons overall, 
the following seasons were much, much more of an accurate depiction. Um, so let me let me just be clear about that piece. Um, and I could go back to, I consulted to a film starring Sigourney Weaver. Um, it was called Snowcake, um, where she played an autistic woman a number of years ago. Um, and she spent a lot of time with autistic people. Um, and I thought her depiction of an autistic woman was brilliant on that show. Um, and by the way, my co-host on my podcast agrees with me. We, we talk about this all the time, that it should be the quality of the acting. Um, you know, it, it shouldn't be just a taboo for a non-autistic person to play an autistic person, as long as it's accurate and respectful. I mean, what's acting after all? So let's turn this on its head, okay? In the Spectrum Theater Ensemble, we have autistic actors playing neurotypical people, okay? Uh, and because it, it's a mixed, you know, company. Um, it's an inclusive company. So for me, it has to do so much with what's the quality of the script? What's the quality of the acting? Is there input from autistic people if there are non-autistic people playing autistic people? But having said that, yes, it is absolutely essential to make sure that autistic people who are quality actors who could really play the parts that really fulfill a script should be given those opportunities and maybe the priority, but it doesn't have to be never ever have an autistic uh, character played by a non-autistic person. I don't see that as taboo. Let me ask you, what is your opinion? So shows that I have enjoyed watching recently, Love on the Spectrum, as we see it, um, and as we see it, I believe is now known as uh, breaking history in turn or creating uh, writing history in terms of casting uh, multiple leads with autism, and then yes. also having uh, multiple crew members or uh, with autism as well. What do you think about those shows? Um, yeah, I mean, as we see it, is you know, again, I see just a few episodes. I haven't seen the whole season. Um, it is amazing. Um, the three leads are on the autism spectrum, two men and, and a woman, different ability levels, different challenges, mm -hmm. um, which is important. And I think the fact that you could have three leads, you don't get just kind of very myopic view. Um, and that's one of the criticisms of atypical that uh, other than having a non-autistic lead actor, um, it's, you know, one young man's experience who's going to go and goes to college and obviously, you know, has many, many abilities academically and in other ways where it's when you have characters who display the full range on the spectrum, that's a little bit, that's a little bit different. Um, so I, I liked uh, Atypical, but especially as the, the show matured into the later, into the later seasons, realizing it is a myopic view. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. And, and by the way, both shows, um, and it's not just about the quality of the depiction of the autistic character. Both shows do a really, really good job delving into the family experience. So I thought Atypical really was very, very strong that way about the stresses in the marriage. What about the sister, the younger sister of the autistic young man, um, who mm -hmm. is the star of the show. She was amazing as far as the complications that she went through about having an autistic brother, mm -hmm. you know, just loving him to death and wanting to support him so much of the time, but having due to his autism, sometimes driving her crazy. Okay. Um, and you also see that in, um, as we see it um, in the relationships between a brother and then in some case a father with the son Mm -hmm. um, so I, that's something that I think people ignore too much. When we talk about the quality of these shows, let's just go beyond how well is the autistic character depicted and is he autistic in real life or is she autistic in real life? But let's look at the bigger picture. You know, what other things in the life of the family, for example, are depicted or in the employment setting, such as they show that and as we see it, actually they mm -hmm. show that in Atypical as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think we are, the field is definitely improving. Um, and I do believe a lot of people see as we see it as kind of the current pinnacle of an accurate, respectful show that includes autistic people. And by the way, a little plug here, my dear friend, Elaine Hall, the founder of the Miracle Project in Los Angeles, 
was hired to be on the set and to be a consultant for As We See It. Um, and my, I, I mentioned my uh, Dave Finch, my podcast co-host, was on the set of Atypical. So two people I know, one a parent, one an autistic person who's getting hired. They're getting hired to actually do this work. Yeah, that's great. What are some things in, in relation to um, having cast and crew who are on the autism spectrum? What are some things to that we should know about or that we don't think about either, you know, challenges, the benefits of it? Yes, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I, I think for those of us who are not in the film or TV industry, we don't realize that when a company is put together to make a film or a TV show, it becomes a community. So it's not just the people in front of the camera being filmed or recorded. It's what happens on the set. If you have autistic people on the set, are there things maybe on a sensory level, the lights being too bright, maybe not getting enough breaks or the pressure of a schedule. So I know that um, Elaine Hall with As We See It, in part, she was on the set to make sure that the set was autism friendly. But if you have crew, if you have camera people, you know, if you have lighting crew, they're going to bring a different perspective in because um, they're going to have knowledge of those sensitivities. The bottom line is you want, going back to emotional regulation, you want a well-regulated company so that all of the actors, autistic or not, can be at their best when they're acting and they're being filmed. So it really does come back to the community. And I've definitely experienced that with both the Miracle Project and the Spectrum Theater Ensemble, that the important piece of what's going on is not that there's an autistic person who is standing up there and acting or singing. It's that communities have been created that are respectful. And in many cases are, you know, the most exciting thing happening in the life of some autistic people. Um, I mean, I know a young man who starred in Light Switch, the um, STE's production this past weekend. He's in his late 20s now. His name is Daniel Perkins. He has perfect pitch, beautiful singing voice. Um, you know, he's a great actor. And I knew him when he was four years old in a preschool. <laughs> um, and it's just to see it to, so amazing to see his acting ability and how he's so proud of that. And, and it's the Spectrum Theater Ensemble is a major, major positive influence in his life right now. It's giving him purpose. Um, Barry, you know, you've written so much and been an advocate for folks with autism and it's helped increase the respect and how we treat folks with autism. But is there also something that you've added just for people without autism? Do you feel like that has also, like we've, we've, we've learned how to treat each other or we learned how to think about our, and interpret our own actions and behaviors and emotions? Yes, yeah. And I, I think, again, if you go back to the deep pathologizing and the reverse of that would be the humanizing, um, what we've emphasized in our work, uh, I think really helps us understand. And, and this is, you know, I don't, I don't like the phrase, there's a little bit of autism in all of us because it really, in some cases, dismisses or diminishes some of the challenges. But I, I believe it gives us insight into understanding the perspective of an autistic person by emphasizing how we may be sensitive to some of the same issues. So for example, my wife is hypersensitive to smell and genetically <laughs> my son also is, okay? Where I'm not so much for me. And I say, oh, come on, it doesn't smell that bad. Now I understand, yeah, it really does smell that bad to them. <laughs> some people are sensitive. Some people are sensitive to touch, um, you know, to sound. So I'm talking about some of the sensory sensitivities, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but some people need routine in their life more than other people. Some people go with the flow. Oh, that appointment was canceled. No big deal. You know, that give me more time to do this as opposed to the other person oh my God, that was canceled. Why can't they keep to the schedule? Um, and we all, in the range of humankind, we all fall at different places along that continuum. Sensory sensitivities, the need for predictability and sameness. I could go on and on. But autistic people, the way I think of it, autistic people um, have some of those same challenges, but are much, much more sensitive to those challenges. And they don't have the coping strategies that neurotypicals have. Um, so what might cause a meltdown 
for an autistic person, for example, hearing a fire alarm go off, we might cover our ears and say, oh God, that's loud and walk away, okay? Our sensory system isn't pummeled. Um, our neurological sensory system isn't pummeled like it might be for an autistic person. Um, and, and that often is displayed in the TV shows and the films you know, that we, we've spoken about. So I, I do think um, the more we could really understand and respect the challenges that autistic people have and put the right supports in place for them, you know, that's the bottom line in helping for, you know, a positive quality of life, you know, whether it involves employment, friendships, just dealing with the storms of everyday life. I totally agree. I myself am particularly partial to children with autism and in my patient population. I, I just love, I, maybe uh, the best way to describe what I really enjoy about working with them is um, imagining a field of sunflowers and all the sunflowers are facing the sun, you know, following the sun. And then maybe off to the side, there's a sunflower that's facing a different direction and really enjoying a bug on the ground and just being so like psyched about this bug on the ground. And I, I just really enjoy how, how much pleasure they get out of their enthusiasm enthusiasms really enjoying it and um also how little they prioritize um the way i i do i'm particularly a people pleaser um so i just really enjoy how how little they prioritize um conformity and uh, like what you mentioned yeah you know it, it's uh, i'm thinking about um uh, on the tv show as we see it I'm thinking about the very first episode now, which was very striking to me, where a young woman um, is supporting three autistic people living in an apartment together. And she apparently had applied to medical school and, and she didn't get in. Her boyfriend mm -hmm. says to her, well, what are you going to do now? Um, and she, her boyfriend wanted her to move to a different city. And, he, and she said, I love these people. You know, I, I just get so much out of... And, and they're showing these challenges that she has with them and where one or two of them have meltdowns and, you know, and, and she's saying, I just love these people. So in my book, I refer to people like that are people who get it. For some reason, they're not only drawn to people with autism, but they appreciate how much they are, who they are as human beings and how much they get back. And I try to emphasize that um, in some of the workshops I do now, I try to end the workshop and saying, you know, my, my feeling about autism is gratitude. You know, it, it's given me a career and a life that I make a living off of around really kind of in, intellectually, on the intellectual side, fascinating people. Um, I'm fascinated by the communication style. I'm fascinated by the developmental patterns, but also emotionally people that I respect for being so honest so straightforward, like you said, mm -hmm. so, you know, over the top about what they love and their enthusiasms. Um, you know, it's interesting, Lee, for one of our podcasts, I, I, I reunited Sigourney Weaver with Roz Blackburn, the woman who she oh, right, char yeah, character after. And Sigourney, and I didn't expect her to say this, but I said, Sigourney, could you just talk a little bit about the time you spent with Roz and preparing for the role? And her first comment was, I learned so much from Roz about life. And I think that we have to be open to that. You know, she learned that, oh my God, the sensory yeah. world is just amazing if you could focus mm -hmm. and listen to the sensory world, like the bumblebee on the flower that you mentioned. Um, and, and so many other things. And that, that, I, I feel the same. I think, um, and a lot of people are now saying this up front, I'm a better person for having autistic people in my life or autistic children in my life, so. And I think that's really a defining part of, you know, what differentiates your work from the established work is, you know, the established work was looking at autism and, and seeing it kind of looking around what existed already to address the issues um, rather than I feel like your work more centered the patient and tried to organically come up with something to address those needs. 
Does, yeah. that, does that make sense? Did I explain that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, 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 and what it comes down to, I'll just kind of extend a little bit of what you said. It comes down to relationship. You know, it, it really comes down. And in, in my book, I talk about the importance of developing a trusting relationship, you know, with an autistic child, with an autistic person. Um, and it doesn't have to be hierarchical. It doesn't have to be, you know, I'm the professional up here treating you down there. It's kind of like really, even if you're with a three-year-old and you're looking at, at a child just, you know, over the top, whatever, doing a puzzle or building a little tower and knocking it down, you know, that it brings you joy to see that it brings joy to the child. And the child knows that. And the child knows that. Um, so yeah. what, what I've really learned, one thing I haven't mentioned is that, you know, we've been doing a parent retreat weekend. We just had our 25th annual parent retreat weekend. Wow. Um, and just to see how both autistic people and parents and family members love professionals who respect their family member on the spectrum and mm -hmm. who really try to get it. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's um, a very quick quote from a mom um, who has an adult son now on the spectrum. She said uh, a number of years ago, her name was Lucy. Lucy said, Barry, the people that my husband and I have always valued were the people who joined us on the journey. They didn't judge us. They listened and they joined us. Um, and I think that says it all. Do you have a book that you're kind of it is it, you're cooking up or it's in the works? I'm just I'm just curious about where you want to go from here. Like what, what direction? What focus do you feel is next? Yeah, yeah. I think and and it's partially in a book, but partially on some other projects that we hope will develop. I believe when it comes to um, society's understanding, you know, your average Joe or your average Mary on the street and how they respond to an autistic person if they know very little or nothing about autism. Um, I, I think it so much has to do with misunderstanding um, and misinterpreting either the behavior of autistic people. Um, uh, again, this is depicted so much on the TV shows now. Um, but what, you know, parents, I hear so many parents saying, and I'm not saying every parent says this, but so many parents saying, you know, we've pretty much got this autism thing down. When we have things under control, we have the environment under control, our son or daughter's doing fine. It's when we have to step out and interface with, you know, people in a crowded store or, you know, going to the dentist's office or whatever. That's where we experience the challenges. It's how other people and society reacts to my son or daughter or to me as an autistic person. Um, so, um, you know, it, in my book, uh, in my book dream, I have a title, something like, you know, misunderstanding neurodivergent people, you know, how to develop a greater understanding, but getting outside of the autism bubble that I think we've made tremendous progress for those people who know autism, have autistic family members, professionals in the field who are well-trained, but the barriers are still outside of the autistic bubble. And how can we really educate? I think it's happening actually more so in the mental health field, you know, where there's a lot more discussion of even chronic depression, you know, don't think of, of this purely as pathology, that it's something that a lot of people experience. It certainly has terrible consequences, but trying to have a more of a public dialogue. Um, so, a child who has a meltdown in a supermarket, you know, it's not about, oh, here's a spoiled kid, parents, why can't you control your kid? But maybe the first assumption might be maybe this child is neurodivergent or maybe on the autism spectrum. Um, I, I think we have to change the lens. We have to shift the lens on how we see people whose behavior we don't understand. And I think that's the most important piece. I was going to ask the question of um, you said like the pandemic and and the 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 kind of isolation it kind of gave us a little bit of an insight into the world of someone with autism and I, I was just wondering do you what do you think about how we as a country or society or different municipalities dealt with the the, the shutdown do you would you provide any suggestions about how to manage it or just folks that had to deal with all that kind of isolation and and quarantining and things like that. Yeah, I would say one thing, because I've experienced this directly, and <clears throat> excuse me, and autistic people I know have, is try to stay connected. I mean, we, we thought we moved our theater expressive arts program totally to Zoom. And at first we thought, is this really going to work? Okay. It's worked beautifully. 
So I think just, I'm not saying for every person on the autism spectrum, but for a wide range of people that I know, excuse me, I think staying connected. Um, I think one of the issues for a lot of people is just sitting still like I am now and going on and on and on. So we actually, I'm talking about maybe in educational connections. Um, we actually do movement and dance remotely with people. Um, I, I think really trying to see some of the isolation as an opportunity to delve into your own enthusiasms. And a lot of people have done this. I mean, a lot of writers are writing a lot more than they've written before. A lot of people into crafts are doing a lot more of that. I think the people who are most stressed and having the most difficulty are the ones who feel like, oh my goodness, you know, the floor has been dropped out from under me and now what do I do with my life? That so many of my relationships and so many things I love to do, I can't do anymore. And I think we just have to think about alternative ways to get into that and to do that. Not saying it's going to relieve all the stress, but I think it may chip away at some of the things we've been missing. Thank you so much, um, Barry. Yeah, thanks, for thanks you for, yeah, for this long extended sure. 